Are there times when I've gotten angry? Absolutely. But I have to focus on calming myself down. First of all, before I address anything, taking that time, taking that moment of just, I just need to go. I'm going to go for a walk and then I'll come back and then we'll figure this out. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the Fall 2021 ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is open. In these life-changing groups, you will work with me and your fellow group members via Zoom to talk about the parenting challenges brought on by ADHD, the start of school, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and you will learn effective ways to manage them. The groups run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays, beginning on Monday, September 27th, and ending on Wednesday, November 17th. One section is at 12 p.m. Eastern, and the other is at 5 p.m. Eastern. The groups are split roughly equally between connection and content. You will be connecting with other ADHD parents and learning that you're not alone. Perhaps the most powerful part of these groups are the connections you'll make with other parents facing similar struggles. Each week has its own theme. Week one is practicing self-care for you and your kid. Week two is parenting as leadership. Week three, fostering connection within the family. Week four, improving connection within the family and outside of it. Week five is creating systems and structures. Week six is managing anxiety. Because if you've got ADHD in your house, you've got anxiety in there as well. Week 7 is understanding my wall of awful model and how to use it to more effectively communicate with your kids. And week 8 is about asking better questions to get better answers. And also, the final week, I open up that door and provide a lot more time for your individual questions. Again, the groups run for 8 weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays. One session at 12pm Eastern, the other at 5pm Eastern. They begin on Monday, September 19th. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com to register for a free information call today. And of course, check out our partner podcasts. ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maben. This coming Tuesday, September 14th, is a live Q&A with the entire ADHD Rewired podcast network. I'd love to see you there. Finally, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I greatly appreciate his help. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Amy Buckley. Amy is the CEO and Chief Academic Officer of the online tutoring platform, StudyHelp, Inc., as well as a full-time special education teacher of mild to moderate students 
with 25 years of experience and an adoptive mom. In today's episode, Amy talks to us about using understanding rather than patience to manage frustrating behaviors and situations, looking at issues as problems to solve rather than moralizing them, the benefits of impulsivity, being solution-focused, behavioral strategies that help at home, and the effervescence of ADHD. It really is a wide-ranging interview. All right, let's get rolling. When I first began 25 years ago for about the first decade, decade and a half, my students were primarily students with ADHD or specific learning disabilities. Now, the students that are purely ADHD as their only diagnosis are about a quarter. There's another quarter to a half that are dual diagnosis, where they're ADHD and on the spectrum or ADHD and have a specific learning disability. I misspoke there because I should not have said mild to moderate classroom because I'm assuming you're using an inclusion model and you probably don't necessarily have your own classroom. I'm assuming you're kind of going into subject area classrooms more often than not. So my classroom is a pull out because I am a SDC classroom. Students do come to me for specific subjects. Okay. I'm, I'm not a resource teacher. You're not a resource teacher. Okay. And honestly, the mild, moderate students I have now are much more towards the moderate range than what I had previously, although their intelligence obviously is still average, but their disability, working with their disability and the, the different types of support they need makes it better for them to be with me. And we cover the same material. So I work very closely with the mainstream teachers and we do activities together. And there are other parts of the day when they are in mainstream classrooms with support. So they might come to me for math or they might come to me for civics and economics. And I teach the material. And just for the audience, what we're playing with here is a thing called the least restrictive environment. Right. Part of the laws of education in the United States, where we want kids to be in the classroom as much as they possibly can be. And the further away from the classroom they are, the more we kind of consider that to be restrictive. So if they're in the classroom all the time, despite whatever disabilities they may have, that's usually mild stuff. Once we hit moderate stuff, it might be a, a pullout class where they're going for, like you said, math or reading or some specific subject, but the other subjects that are in the classroom, potentially with support of a teaching assistant or a paraprofessional or something like that. And then more and more restrictive as we travel into more severe difficulties for students up to and including totally different schools that are designed specifically for kids with severe learning disabilities. And that's where I started. Oh, really? Yeah. I started the first five years was in a non-public school. So public schools pay non-public schools to educate their students. How did that inform your current role? So I spent five years at a school that was for children that were seriously emotionally disturbed. Most of them had very traumatic incidences in their lifetime. 
where they were abused, neglected, things happened. That was a very challenging place to work because you would read their files and just heartbreaking. So at the five-year point, um, my husband asked me to change out of that school because it, it wears on your soul. You know, they come home a lot and you're just in tears and just hard, you know, to see these kids go through this stuff that they're going through. And that's actually where I decided I didn't want to be a therapist and that I wanted to be a teacher because knowing the things that had happened to these children, I realized that for me, it would be really hard to be in a room with the people who had done it to them and be rational. Because you care so much about these kids. And then in that place, that would be really hard in a discussion or a meeting where it's talking about education and so forth, that that's has a little bit of a cleaner line than getting into the abuse and neglect. Yeah, that's really hard. How has that experience with such strong emotional challenges, does that make you more patient with your students? Does that make you less patient with your students? Where does that, how does that frame your perspective now? You know, I love this question because people always say to me when, when they find out I'm a special ed teacher, oh, you must be so patient. I'm like, well, you don't really know me because <laughs> I am not a patient person. You have not seen me behind the wheel of a car. I don't think it has anything to do with patience. I think it has to do with expectations, understanding. I, I describe it like in the scene in Jurassic Park where the velociraptors are trying to get out and they're periodically testing the cage, right? Where I'm period, I would like go through and I am trying to figure out a way to help each kid. So I'm very focused on that. It's not about waiting for them to get it. If they're not getting it, then it's my job to find a different way to present that information so they understand. Patience, I'd say, is, is not a huge part of being a really good special ed teacher or a special ed parent. Sometimes you do need some patience. I'm going to be honest. But in the end, it's really the expectations of, well, why did they do that? I told you this before, but we adopted our daughter as a teenager and we had just renovated our house and we had all new floors. In a span of about six months, she managed to damage three of them. <laughs> the first one she dropped, I don't know why she was carrying way too much stuff and dropped it on our hardwood floor. And there's like a big dent. And then she was cleaning the bathroom floor and she put the cleaner down and left and didn't realize. And like the next morning it had acid etched the floor and you know, what are you going to do? Right. Right. Like getting mad, isn't going to change the fact that the floor is now got this acid etch. What, what does that have to do with patients? Right. Like let's find a solution. I like the way you're reframing this because to me that's patience. Right. But I might be using that word incorrectly and you're really shining a light on the fact that I'm probably using that word in, incorrectly because you're saying that it's not patience, it's understanding. And that's awesome, right? Like, cause to me, the reason I'm so patient is because I'm an understanding person, right? Like understanding is my tool that I use to not get upset when my floor gets wrecked or whatever the case may be. I like this reframe around like, that's, that's not really patience. That's understanding. Cause 
once you understand it, once you're able to reframe things, you're not really trying to control your emotions anymore. You're just like, ah, well, let's address this as the problem that it is. Absolutely. And, and it makes your life so much easier as a parent or a teacher when you're not getting upset about stuff. You just like, oh, well, okay, let's fix it. Yeah. It happened. I mean, getting, getting angry is not going to fix the problem, right? It just makes them feel bad. It doesn't make you feel any better. It has, it has no solution. Are there times when I've gotten angry? Absolutely. But I have to focus on calming myself down. First of all, before I address anything, taking that time, taking that moment of just, I just need to go. I'm going to go for a walk and then I'll come back and then we'll figure this out when I've taken it down a notch. Right. Yeah. That's, that's great. I really like that. And I also like your lens on approaching it as a problem to solve, as opposed to, I don't know, like a moral judgment. They did something wrong and are bad and that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a problem to address. I like that too. So many individuals that have ADHD, they feel like they are less worthy because things have happened in their life and the expectations that are placed upon them are not expectations that for them as someone who's not neurotypical are not reachable without building a framework of support. So they, they feel like they're a terrible person when really they're wonderful people that have all these great things to offer, but we've created all this emotion around it and this history. And the fact that it gets framed as a moral failing more often than not, right? Like right. how often do kids and adults with ADHD get called lazy? And we all know lazy is a moral thing. It's not like an energy thing or whatever. It's just, you don't care. You're not motivated. You're not willing to do whatever it is that needs to be done. And that's not ADHD. That's not really how it works. It's, it's a difficulty with activating and starting and understanding what you need to do or even remembering what you need to do. That's more where, right. where it tends to fail. That tunnel vision, which I have a little story. So during the lockdown, I was working in the dining room and my daughter teaches Kung Fu. So she was teaching online and I just hear door open, door close, door open, door close. And I see her running through the house with the staff. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm going to teach the staff in her bedroom, which does not have a high ceiling and has a fan, a ceiling fan. I'm like, no, you're not (laughs) teaching the staff in your bedroom. But what I love about that is she saw what needed to be done and she just did it. How many times for me do I overthink things? right? Like I think of every possible thing that could go wrong before a situation. She really doesn't. (laughs) The people that do that, that have that kind of like laser focus on what's going on, those people are movers and shakers in our world. They're the ones that just leap. And I think a lot of huge breakthroughs in our world and the things that have been done are done by people who probably have ADHD because they're like, I'm just going to do it. And don't think about all those things that could go wrong. As a guy who is scuffed up the ceiling of his dojo, 
and and kicked a hole in the wall at one point. Um, you're not wrong. Like sometimes you just do the thing. And and as an ADHD person, there's plenty of things that I've done that are successful. This podcast is a good example where I'm like, I'm just going to go do that. Even my speaking career started because there was a person who came to our library who was talking about ADHD and was like just making stuff up, trying to sell a herbal supplement that was going to treat ADHD, which of course it didn't because that's not what herbal supplements do. But my wife came home all ticked off about it. And I was like, well, I'll go and check it out and see what it is. And she was like, we're just going to get this other person who does ADHD workshops. I'm going to talk to him and see if he go, will go to the library and like fix this problem. And I was like, I can fix that problem. I know enough about ADHD to do that. And I kind of got aggravated with my wife that she didn't believe in me that I could go and do this thing. And I wasn't the first person she thought of because she knew I was doing ADHD work by then. It was very early in my career, but still. And that sort of caused me to take action. I wrote to the librarian. I ended up doing the counter workshop and that got me going. And I realized, oh, I can do this because that happens too. Sometimes we just jump in and do something and it's problematic and we, and we break ceiling fans or whatever. And other times we're successful with it. And we're like, oh, if I had stopped to think, I might not have done that, but I didn't stop to think. So now I know I can do that. I have a question. I want to circle back to that problem solving stuff real quick, because that's the thing I talk about in my parent groups is the importance of approaching a problem as a problem and trying to sort of squash some of our emotional response to it. But one of the things that I tend to caution on that, and I'm, and I'm wondering where you where you land on this and how your approach affects you in this area is when our kid causes a problem, it's important for us to kind of navigate our emotions and approach it from a problem solving perspective. But that doesn't mean our kid has been able to do that. And often part of the problem solving on our end is we have to help them navigate their emotional response to the problem that they've caused. But some of my parents that are more problem solving oriented kind of skip that step a little bit because it's not something that they personally need to do all that often. So they kind of miss it with the kid. How are you with that? Is that something that's comfortable for you? Is it something that you might miss? Where does that land? So in being solution oriented is what I refer to it with my students and my daughter. I don't solve their problem. I don't even try to solve their problem. We sit down and we have a discussion about what decision did you make? Why did you make it? Was it effective? What could you do differently next time? And we brainstorm that so that they're walking themselves through that problem. I'm not going to be there forever, especially my students. I have a certain amount of time. And from the moment they walk into my classroom, I'm telling them, look, in four years, you don't have an IEP anymore. We have got to get you the skills that you need to be successful when you walk out of the school. There's a lot of things in my classroom that are not typical for high school classroom. I have a rule that if you need to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. You choose the appropriate time and you let someone know. I have an aide in the classroom. You let somebody know I'm going to the bathroom and you go to the bathroom. Nobody raises their hand in real life. That's awesome. And I also make it clear, like, look, if you're sick, you just run. Don't even bother to tell anybody <laughs> because... When I taught middle school, at least one time a year, someone would throw up in the classroom. I'm sorry. That's disgusting, which is why I moved to high school, because I don't want to deal with that. So there's certain life skills that 
I think are so important for our children to have to be successful citizens. Being able to solve their own problems is so, so important. And I know a lot of parents these days, they're like, well, I'm the parent. I should do these things. Well, are you going to be doing these things when they're 19, 20 years old? Some of them still do. It's a little embarrassing, but you need to, you need to have the skills to solve your own problems. Yeah, I agree. And when I said solving their problems, I really mean helping solve their problems, which is what you're doing. You're helping them solve their problem. Because sometimes as parents, we have resources that our kids don't have and they need those resources. And the only way to get them is with our help. But I love, I love that approach. I love that reframe that you just gave me. And I especially love the bathroom thing because that's something that drives me crazy about school. Me too. To my mind, the if you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom is a respect thing. Like I respect you as a person and I'm assuming that you respect this class and will stick around and be here when you're supposed to be. And if you're not, then that gives me a clue that there's a different problem going on. So go to the bathroom if you need to go to the bathroom. I love that. So I'm at least cheering you on. And you know, something I've been doing that for 20 years. And in that time, I probably had one to two kids take advantage of that for a very short period of time. And then we had a discussion about, I'm working very hard to treat you like an adult and I need you to behave like an adult. And then the behavior stops. Yeah. And when kids take advantage of, of your perceived, I don't know, lack of discipline or laissez-faire approach, really what they're responding to is the more toxic and authoritarian approach of the rest of the school or the rest of the school system that they've been through up until now that's so rigid and so strict. My classroom is definitely structured, but not rigid. For example, I have a lot of flexible seating. I let kids move around. I have a kid who he graduated a few years ago, but he needed to stand up and jump. Like you jump, dude, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't bother the other kids. I, some of his other teachers I had worn, I had said ahead of time, you know, sometimes you can need to stand up and jump the kid, the kids, the rest of the students are not bothered by that. And then he's able to focus. So why am I going to stop that? Sitting still does not indicate attention or focus or work quality. In fact, movement actually enhances all of those things. So I encourage it in my classroom. One of the things that always amazes me when I go and observe classrooms is when I notice that a kid has a fidget, kind of like the jumping thing, but less obvious. Kids got a fidget and the teacher's jumping on the kid for playing with their fidget even though it's like on their IEP or whatever. And the only person who's being disturbed by that fidget is the teacher. Usually what happens is the teacher catches one kid get interrupted or distracted by this fidget toy and jumps immediately instead of giving that one kid the two or three minutes they need to kind of acclimate to this other kid playing with a fidget. Because if you give them two or three minutes, then everyone's tuned in. The one kid that got distracted gets over it and recognizes, oh, that kid's just going to be playing with a, snap bracelet or whatever, I guess I'll keep paying attention to math. But the teacher has seen this pattern that they think is a pattern so many times because they keep interrupting it. So the pattern is kid takes out a fidget, 
Another kid gets distracted. I squash it. Eventually, I don't law fidgets in my classroom anymore because I never let the other kid learn that it's okay to let Tommy play with his fidget. That Oh, that drives me crazy. So what have you noticed 25 years of, of special education? What have you noticed with regard to things that are helpful at home? What should parents be paying attention to or trying to implement or advocating for as we roll into a new school year? So when the students are working on their homework at home, again, they do not need to be sitting at a table or a desk. They should sit where they're comfortable. If they need to stand up and have happy feet, let them stand up and have happy feet. I don't know if you ever read the book Spark. I haven't. That's been on my list for so long and I haven't picked it up. So I read it about a decade ago and he talks a lot about it's by John Rady. Right. Um, he talks a lot about how exercise and movement increases the blood flow and it makes you learn better. And it's not just something for people who are neurodiverse. I myself employ these tactics. I was studying to become a, a referee, a full contact referee, and a lot of the commands are in Mandarin. And so I had to learn the commands. This is Kung Fu. Kung Fu. I'm on the treadmill at the hotel where we're doing the seminar with my flashcards, running on the treadmill, doing my flashcards, because I know that this is going to actually make me learn it better, right? That movement is going to get that those words embedded in my brain. I ended up head of class both times because I know all these tactics that work to record, giving moments of pause. You walk in, it looks like your child is staring into space. That's great. Those breaks, their brain is replaying what they have just learned 20 times faster than it happened. So they are getting all this review and getting it implanted in their brain. There is nothing wrong with those moments. They are really important. Transitions are super important. I wouldn't say, okay, you got home, put your stuff down and get to your homework. Kids need downtime. Give them a chance. Give them breaks. Give them breaks that involve things that are fun for them, but that they can transition out of. So certain things are going to be more difficult to transition back and forth if you have a child with ADHD. So like I had a student who was just an amazing artist. Well, once he got going, there wasn't going to be a way to stop him, right? Because that now becomes his obsession. So giving those, those breaks and those times to breathe, I like to alternate different types of activities. So a harder activity with an easier activity, pairing something that they they're don't really like with something after that they do really like, but isn't necessarily their blinder activity. I mean, I know that you know what I'm talking about, about a blinder activity because- Yeah, where the world disappears while they're doing it. The world disappears and eight hours can go by, which is why a lot of parents will fight the ADHD diagnosis because they're like, oh, my kid can spend hours building these really intricate Legos. Well, I think that ADHD is maybe a little bit of a, a mistitle. Oh yeah. The name sucks. Right. Because it doesn't mean that you have a deficit to any kind of attention. 
There's just certain things that for me, like I have my little list every day and I check it off and I get a little dopamine pop every time I check something off that list. Yeah. And my daughter does not. That doesn't do anything for her. Yeah. With ADHD, it's not a deficit of attention. No, not at all. It's an inability to regulate your attention. So there's times when I'm dialed in and I can't undial, like I'm just in this thing and I'm doing it. And if you pull me out, I have a really strong emotional response to it because it's frustrating that you're pulling me out because I'm so tuned into this thing. There's other times when it could be even the same activity for me where I'm just like, I can't, I can't bring myself to do this thing. I can't get my attention to cooperate with me in order to tune into this, let alone dial into it, just to tune into it. That happens to me fairly often with the podcast where I'm like, I need to edit. And I'm like, I'm just not, this editing is not cooperating with me right now. And then I get into it after like five or 10 minutes. And now I'm really tuned in. Someone's talking in the next room and I'm like, don't you know that I'm editing the podcast? You can hear it. Shut up. Oh my God. But which is not an appropriate response. So I don't actually say that, but that stuff goes through my head sometimes. And it's, it's really a hard component for AD, with ADHD is both the, the inability to bring your attention where it needs to be and also the inability to pull it out of, especially something that you might actually need to be tuned into, but for some reason you have to come out of it for 12 seconds, 15 seconds. Because a good example of this is when my, when my wife and I were, we were living together, but we hadn't gotten married yet. It was like that year of engagement. And I would be grading papers And my wife would come over and like read a headline at me from a website called FARC that has like funny newspaper headlines kind of thing. And I would lose five, 10 minutes from a 30 second interruption because I was so productive in that mode. And then I got, I lost that mode. So I had to get back into it and that would take 10 minutes and it'd be half as productive. So I lost five minutes. And sometimes if she read two or three of them at me over the course of 10, 15 minutes, I'm just done now because I don't know when you're going to interrupt me again. I don't know what's happening. So I was just kind of sitting there, not paying attention to what I was doing, waiting to get interrupted. And stupid me, right? Like sort of immature me. What I didn't do was say to her, hey, can you please not interrupt me? Because it makes it harder for me to do my stuff. If you've got some things you want to share with me, please like, I don't know, make a list of them and give me them all at once or tell me later or whatever. I didn't have that conversation with her back then. I eventually did because I realized what was going on. But that's another piece of ADHD is we tend, folks with ADHD are often people pleasers. They're often putting other people's stuff ahead of their stuff, even when the other person's stuff is relatively frivolous and their stuff is pretty meaningful. We still, we have trouble with that prioritization and recognizing what matters more or matters less. And it can be to our own detriment. So all of that plays into that attentional challenges for ADHD. It does. It does for sure. I know for my daughter, when she's working on a project, my husband will want to come in and say something to her. And I'm like, just leave her alone. (laughs) Just let her finish and then tell her what you need to tell her because she's on a roll, but just let her go with it. Which brings me to the next thing, which is automate. Automate as much as you possibly can so that they can just focus on those really important things like for you editing the podcast. So I try and set up things for my students and for my daughter so that, well, for her, I, we talk about 
this, but for my students, even them, even with them, I talk to them about, okay, we need a system that's going to work for you. This can't be my system for you. This has to be your system for you. And in the beginning, we usually have to try lots of different things before we find the system that works for them so that they can remember all those bits and pieces. For some of them, actually having a physical planner is fine. Some of them need alarms on their phone. Some of them need emails. Some of them need me to contact their parents with certain things. But when we do that, we make an agreement. Okay, so do you want me to email your parents about this field trip so that they know that this isn't you're in trouble or you're, you can't handle it, but it's a way of supporting them and not because they're not good enough. It's a system of getting things done so that they have the time and the energy to focus on what's important to them. Cause let's face it. There's a lot of stuff in our lives that are kind of lame, boring, like doing your laundry that you have to do, but there's no intrinsic value. You're not like, oh my God, <laughs> I did this great load of laundry today, right? You just have to do it. And I think getting help from parents is misunderstood as a resource, right? A lot of folks tend to break towards, I shouldn't have to help my kid remember the thing, or my kid shouldn't be able to kind of use me as a resource. And to my mind, yeah, eventually you want that to sunset because when they're 18 and leaving the house or whatever, you want them to be able to be independent and do the thing on their own. But as long as they're living with you, I think that they're allowed to ask you for help. It should just happen less often the older they get. The most basic example of this is, I mean, especially when we were kids, maybe it happens less now due to the, due to the internet. I don't know. But I remember I couldn't spell a word and I would ask my mom or my dad, like, how do you spell artichoke? And the answer was always look it up like the dictionary is over there, which is silly to me, because if I know how to spell it, I'll be able to find it in the dictionary. <laughs> right. But if I don't know how to spell it, I'm probably not going to be able to find it in the dictionary. So help me out. And the other piece of that is what's the difference between me looking it up in a dictionary versus me asking mom or dad? In either case, I'm using a resource to get the answer that I need. And I, I'm just asking mom or dad instead of the dictionary, right? Like it's almost a labor saving effort. And so to in that degree, yeah, I should know how to find the thing I need without going through mom and dad. I get that. That's an independence thing. But if it's easier to ask mom and dad or more appropriate to ask mom and dad, I don't think that we necessarily have to always push back and deny the support. So I don't know. That's a, that's a thing I get on my soapbox for sometimes. And especially for reminders, like I talk to my wife and have her remind me of stuff. I was just going to say that I did that just the other night where we were out having dinner or Sunday night dinner. And I was like, oh, I forgot to do this. And I told my husband, my daughter, please remind me when I get home because I keep forgetting. That's just a normal human thing. Yeah. And it's not as having your parents do that for you was not necessarily bad. I ask my aide in the classroom all the time, don't let me forget to hand out the field trip permission slips before the end of the period, because I'll get on a roll and I'm talking about Queen Nefertiti or something. And then next thing you know, 
period's over, everyone's left. And I'm like, oh no, I forgot to pass out the permission slips. Yeah. I think that's just normal. Why do we not help each other? I, I think one piece is parents assume that they have more going on than their kids do and kind of resent the like, well, I have big, important adult stuff that I have to pay attention to. How come you can't pay attention to your school stuff, for example? And what they're not recognizing is that your kids, there's a good chance they have more going on than you do because their stuff is more compartmentalized. They have more individual things, right? Like they go to school, let's say there's seven periods in the day. That's seven different things they have to pay attention to that are distinct from one another. And then if they have after school stuff like Kung Fu lessons or the musical or a play or something, there's that as well. And when you go to work, probably you don't have that many distinct different things that you're doing. You probably have like two or three, right? Like I'm in charge of these accounts and I have to pay attention to these accounts. Maybe some of you have like 12 different accounts, but you're probably not dealing with all 12 at the same time. You're probably dealing with like three or four is my guess. And so when your kid is asking for help, part of it is because they really are tapped out and at their limit for how many variables they have to pay attention to. And also their brain is not as developed as yours is. It's not built to handle all these variables. And everything is new. For us at work, we see the same sort of situations. We've been here. We've done this. We've handled this situation 10, 20, 30, hundreds of times before. For them, think about school. You're learning new things every day, new procedures every year for each one of those different classes is going to have a different procedure for how things are done that they have to learn. And then the next year, same thing, starting from scratch. We are not learning new things constantly. The world is not new to us. Yeah, that's a good point. That brings me back to like, one of the most stressful things that happens to us is when we move because all of our systems change. Like everything is just in a different place and you have to learn all new systems in your new house. Mm-hmm. Not to mention whatever social stuff is happening with meeting new people. That's the same thing in school. You, that, that's an awesome point. And there's things that happen, like um, my cat passed away a few years ago, and it totally disrupted my morning because the first thing I did in the morning was feed the cat, you know, the cat, pet the cat, do this with the cat. And then it set up my day for my process right? When I didn't have that anymore, it took me a good one to two months to like recalibrate without having those things that happen throughout the day and caring for the animal. And that's just as an animal. That's not new every single day. And that's just the morning, right? That's not like school has now started. So I have a new system I have to learn in math class first period. And then second period, I have a new system for shop. And then it's a totally new system for my English class. I've got to learn these seven systems over the course of the next one to two months or however long it takes. And teachers, as amazing as teachers are, they never really give that enough time. Not their fault. They don't have the time to give enough time to that process. That's the nature of school. Like a lot of the systemic stuff for school kind of undermines some of the things we're talking about. But I think it's important to point out. What are we missing? What else is burning in your mind? I'd say the last thing is really being supportive and understanding in situations and not building that anxiety for our children. Most of my students that have ADHD come in with a lot of anxiety 
because of past experiences that they've had in the classroom or at home. When we brought our daughter into our home, she had just a ton of anxiety about doing things wrong all the time. And that I feel is very universal for children with ADHD. They just have a ton of anxiety about messing up because they feel like they're always doing it. And by responding in a kind, caring, loving manner, we can really bring that anxiety down, which is going to allow them to be so much more productive and just happier. Don't we want our children to be happy? Of course we do. So what we bring into situations is either going to build that anxiety or it's going to lower that anxiety. And it's important for us as adults to be adults and to walk into situations with that understanding. Last question. And then we'll do the real last question. You've been working with ADHD kids for over two decades now. What do you love about them? I have found that people with ADHD have an effervescence to their personalities. There's just like a freshness about them, a bubble to them, a joy to them. And I think a lot of that has to do with that just go for it personality. They're funny, they're fun, they're joyful. They're just really pleasures in our life. And for us to view them in in that manner, that perspective, can open up our eyes to what we can learn from them as human beings. I feel like there's a lot we can learn. I know for me, there's a lot that I learn all the time from my students. And I just, effervescence, I'd say is, is the word I would describe most individuals I know with, with ADHD. What have you learned from your students? Can you give us a couple examples? That go for it, that just do it and not worrying about the consequences, probably because they don't pop in their head, but they certainly pop in my head. I'm a very anxious person. And I think about everything that could possibly go wrong. And I have actually taken a lot from that in my own life. Like starting the study help platform was a big step for me because running my own company where I could, I could just stay in the classroom. Right. But I took this leap because I see what you can gain from, from taking a chance. And I found it to be really rewarding. Cool. And we haven't talked about study help. So let's do that. Tell us a little bit about what study help is, and then we'll do the ending essential. Study help is an online tutoring platform where I connect amazing teachers with families who are looking for extra support. So in the classroom, I have 56 minutes with 20 students. On the Steady Help platform, I have 50 minutes with one student or five students, never more than, than 10 students at a time, generally much smaller than that. And we can really get into the learning and follow their train of thought and discover those things, the questions that they have, those academic questions, we can get into that. In a classroom, I can't do that because I have to stay on track for what the assignment is that day. But if a student brings a homework assignment to me and we're working on it, 
and they have a question about when was the first boat built? I remember this one vividly because it was really educational for me. And then we looked it up and it was exciting and it was fun. And we learned about when the first boat was built. The same student was working on a project on Paris and boy, there was a lot of different inquiries that he had that we went down. He's in fourth grade. He's super into going to Paris. It was awesome. I learned a lot about Paris, but I can't necessarily do that in the classroom because I might have one kid doing Paris, another one doing Beijing, another one doing Rio de, de Janeiro. So I don't have that time, but in those sessions we do. Also, I have the experience and my teachers have the experience to work through that anxiety. So if at home, there's a lot of math anxiety and the homework and it's frustration and there's tears, getting on with one of our teachers can really build confidence in that student, make that work much easier, much more understandable, makes them much more successful in school. And you have that personal connection and that help that you need all the time to be successful. And the families that I've had so far just are so thankful and so happy with what we've offered them. And they feel like their children are, are so much more successful. And these aren't just children who are struggling. Half of our students are students that are really AP honor student, and they're looking for that extra edge. And it actually builds a lot more time into their day. So they get on with one of our teachers and they work for an hour and that might save them two more hours that they would have been struggling with that at home. So now they have these two hours of free time that they can do something that they enjoy. I just think it's really a valuable tool for a lot of families and I can see the, the value in helping these kids. So I'm still getting that intrinsic teacher vibe going on where I know that I'm contributing something positive to our society. And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Learning may be a struggle, but it should not be stressful. It should not cause anxiety. There should be qualities to it that are fun. Your children should feel, they should be excited to tell you about what they learned. That's what you want at the dinner table after they're done with their homework or in the morning on the way to school. So creating an environment where that is happening and getting the help you need if that's not happening is really important because you want them to feel like they can learn. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.